All right, good to see everybody. <clears throat> Glad you're here. My name is Brad. If you're uh, newer to Crosspoint, and um, we do this midweek series for kind of semesters about three times a year, and so we're starting a new one. And as you can see, the topic is what the Bible says about some difficult topics. Tonight, we're going to talk about miracles and what the Bible says about miracles. Should we seek miracles? Are they still something God does? What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says some certain, certain things in the Gospels? And then next week, we're going to look at uh, women in ministry, which has been a very controversial topic lately in the church, especially in our circles. Should women preach in the gathered church? Should women be pastors? Then we'll look at baptism, um, the, the appropriate age of baptism, who should be baptized. We'll look at politics, and we're going to look at uh, marijuana if it becomes legalized. I, th I think, in fact, the spike in attendance is you guys really want to come to that one. <laughs> but you don't just want to show up for that one, so you just kind of come to the ones before to hide your real interest. And then we're going to finally end with uh, the, the question of, of, of homosexuality and transgender. Can a person be a Christian and homosexual and transgender? So it'll be a six-week series, and I'm glad you're here tonight. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Um, uh, first, I've been asked to uh, just remind you that we eat at 545, and so if you're newer here uh, to coming to Midweek Fellowship, um, please remember to RSVP because sometimes we've run out of food. I don't know that that happened tonight, but we'd love to have you here to eat as well, um, and just remember to RSVP earlier on in the week so we can order them a right amount of food. Okay, announcements out of the way. The motivation behind this series um, behind this six-week series is, is some questions that, that I think pastorally um, need addressing in our culture in the church today. Tonight in particular, I want us to look at the, the biblical concept of miracles. Does God still do them? If so, what should our expectation be? And, and what should our posture be as a church in, in pursuing or not pursuing miracles? My concern pastorally to answer this question was amplified recently, especially this past December, when uh, uh, many of you probably are aware uh, that I follow things on the internet and just kind of the Christian culture. When this past December, we, we heard about the tragic passing of a little two or three-year-old girl uh, at a church in California, specifically Bethel Church, which is in Redding, California, which is kind of Northern California. And this church, which is very well known, not only nationally, but internationally in charismatic and Pentecostal groups, uh, really started a campaign to pray for the resurrection of this little girl who passed away unexpectedly. And this, this campaign to pray for this little girl to come back from the dead uh, really went viral on the internet across much of the American church and even internationally as the influence of Bethel Church which many of you may be aware, if you're not aware of Bethel Church, you're probably most certainly aware, at least somewhat, of their music, Bethel Music. Uh, also kind of an offshoot of Bethel Church is, is Jesus Culture Music, a very influential group um, in American Christian circles. And so I I've, I've, uh, want to respond. I want to talk about miracles, but I also, as a, an aside, wanna, want to address some of the issues and I think very concerning theologies that are coming out of Bethel. Um, so my, my, con my concern extends to the broader influence of just this new stream of, of charismatic Pentecostal churches that seem to be very influential, especially through their music. And, um, and, and so I want to talk about that, and, and I hope that tonight we will uh, not only kind of address that, but then help inform our practice as a local church. We don't want to just talk about, you know, we don't want to just critique others. We also want to encourage and cultivate a better biblical understanding within ourselves so that we wouldn't just be able to say, oh, well, that's not quite right, because we're not quite right in the way we do things as well. None of us are fully. And so we want to cultivate um, all that God has for us in a biblical way. So to do that, let me, to start us off, let me just read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 and pray. And then I've got three questions that I'm going to put on the screen just to frame our time. But first I want to orient us to this passage that, that hopefully will we'll, we'll set our, 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 our compasses in the right direction. Paul writes, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. So I pray tonight that our time in the Word would equip us, that it would help, it would help make us more like Jesus, that it would correct us, it would train us, and that it would help us be complete in Christ. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for these friends, these brothers and sisters that are here tonight. I pray that our time in your word, our time examining what your word says about this important topic of your power, of miracles, of your glory would be beneficial. I pray that what I teach tonight would be correct and would be um, an, a, a good representation of the truth. If there's anything that I say that's wrong, I do pray that it would fall to the ground. Uh, I pray that that our time together would help us be a church that looks more like what you desire the New Testament church to be because what's at stake is the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel and the salvation of souls and the building up of your people. So help us to that end tonight as we look at this topic, and I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to ask and answer hopefully three questions, and then hopefully we'll have time at the end for some questions. I mean, I know it's a school night, so our goal is to, to conclude at, at 7.30. These three questions are, one, does God still perform miracles today? Two, what did Jesus mean when he said that we would do greater works than him? And he mentions that. We'll read that scripture specifically in John 14. What does Jesus mean that we would do greater works than him? And then thirdly, what should be our posture towards miracles as believers today and as a church? Okay, question number one. Does God still perform miracles? Well, to cut to the chase, I think the answer to that question is yes. I believe certainly he still does do miracles. But I think the vast majority of Christians, the overwhelming vast majority of Christians, even those that would categorize themselves as cessationists, meaning that they come from a theological perspective, believing that the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament, the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament, which include things like healing and miracles, uh, even those that would believe, even Christians that would be of that theological persuasion, that would believe that those gifts have primarily ceased in this particular age, still, to some degree, believe that God is able, certainly, to act however he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. And even people that might have that theological perspective would certainly still pray for God to do a miracle of maybe healing if somebody in their congregation has cancer or something along those lines. So my point at this point is to merely say that I think the overwhelming majority of Christians from across the denominational perspectives or theological camps believe that God still does miracles. Now there's varying levels of, of, of whether or not that's primary in God's work in this particular time, but let me just say at this point that yes, I believe God still does miracles. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to differentiate between two camps of, of, to answer this question. The first camp is that would be the camp that I, I would consider myself in and, and that probably a majority of the American church would be in is that, yes, God still does miracles. However, they are not necessarily normative in this particular age or as frequent as they were in the New Testament time. Okay, so yes, here's my, here's, here I'm gonna walk you through some verses that would support this perspective that yes, God still does miracles, but they are not necessarily normative or as nearly as frequent as they were during the time and ministry of Jesus and the apostles in the first century. So that, that, corresponding with that perspective is the thought that yes, we can and should pray for God to heal, but we realize that miracles are not necessarily as normative or frequent in the life of the church. Okay, some, some scriptures to support this perspective. Uh, first is this view that I think is correct is that the purpose of miracles primarily in the New Testament was to authenticate and to validate the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. And we're going to talk about what apostles are specifically in a moment. But first, let's look at what the Bible says about the purpose of miracles in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this is going to become really important when I contrast this view with the other view that says miracles should be normal in the life of a Christian today. So at this point, we're going to look at what, is, what, is, what, what does the Bible say about the function of miracles in the ministry of Jesus? 
Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost standing up and preaching the gospel at the crowd gathered for Pentecost where thousands of people repent and believe. And Jesus says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. That word attested, validated, vindicated, proven to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he gets up and he's about to preach a message about Christ and his work, his death, his resurrection, his power. And he's saying this Jesus did these miracles. And what was the purpose of these miracles? Primarily to attest to who he was as the son of God. Now, this is what Jesus says as as an explanation of one of the early miracles that he did. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible of these four friends who have have a paralyzed friend who couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus opens up the book of Mark. He's healing all sorts of people. There's this man that's paralyzed. He can't get to Jesus. And so his four friends get this man on his cot they somehow get him up on the roof, they dig through the roof, and they lower him down into Jesus, the room where Jesus was, because the crowd was so thick that they couldn't get through. I mean, imagine if we're just kind of, all of a sudden, somebody's breaking through, jackhammer in the ceiling, and somebody lowers down just to get to church. That's the scene. So let me read Mark 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now think about that. You, you know, you've gone through the effort to get your friend to Jesus, and he's paralyzed. You dig through the roof. I mean, that's unusual and maybe a little bold. And the guy's in front of Jesus, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, well, thank you, Jesus. But actually, we kind of dug through the roof. Didn't you notice he was on a, I mean, we kind of went through a little bit of trouble. That's not what we're here for. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you'll, you take note that what, what got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders in the Gospels was his, his actions that pointed to or somehow indirectly claimed deity. It was blasphemy for them to think, who can, only God forgives sins. What, do you, what right do you have? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Listen to verse 10. And in verse 10, I think Jesus gives us the purpose of the miracles that he does in the Gospels, the primary purpose but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that you may know that I'm God, essentially is what he's saying. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified. God saying, we never saw anything like this. So we see here, not only by Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost, but also Jesus' own words, where he is pointing us to the primary purpose of miracles in his life and ministry, which was to attest to, to authenticate, to prove, to establish his deity. That's the primary purpose of the miracles in the life of Jesus. And then we see in the life of Jesus' apostles, we see that the miracles came through the hands of the apostles in the New Testament church, and the, the primary purpose of the uh, miracles in the, through the hands of the apostles was also to validate their ministry. So who are the apostles? The apostles are these 12 men that were specifically his 12 closest disciples. 
Judas falls off at the end. Obviously, the Lord knew that. And then Matthias is chosen there in the first chapter of Acts. And these 12 apostles were men that were closest to Jesus. They were with him during his earthly ministry. And they were especially commissioned by Jesus. And then later on in the early parts of the book of Acts, we read about Paul receives the the ministry of an apostle as Jesus comes back down from heaven after his resurrection to appear to Paul and calls Paul to be an apostle. And so Paul, along with these 12, are apostles, which is a Greek word that literally means sent ones. And they have a special authority in the in redemptive history. They have a special one-time authority. And these men are the ones that Jesus especially commissioned to establish the church and through whom they were to be the foundation of the church. And through these men came what we now have and know of as the New Testament. And the mark, the, the proof that made a letter or a book make it into what we have now as the 27 letters or books of the New Testament, the mark, the thing that the church was looking for was whether it came through one of the hands, through the pen of an apostle or through one of their ministry associates. So the books that we know of as the New Testament made it into the Bible because they carried with them apostolic authority. So these men, these 12 men, had a special one-time role in redemptive history to establish the church and to bring us the word of God, to consolidate the teaching of Jesus and make the New Testament. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and 4 and a few other places calls these apostles and prophets the foundation of the church. And a foundation is only laid once, right? And so the apostles are laid as the foundation of the church. And in order to authenticate or validate or attest the ministry of the apostles, of the apostles, God gave signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles for the very similar purpose that he gave in Jesus' ministry to attest, to validate their ministry, to prove it as a special one-time authoritative role. So let me read some scripture that speaks to that. Acts chapter 2, we're going to just have them up on the screen, read through them pretty quickly. Acts 2 verse 43, and we came up and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So again, these apostles are a one-time group of men. So that means, by the way, just as an aside, that if anybody's calling themselves an apostle now, don't listen to them, they're wrong. Now they may be well-intentioned or just misinformed, but there are no, all the apostles are dead. And so if somebody's calling themselves an apostle, I think that's very likely that they, they probably um, don't mean anything sort of deceitful or evil about it. Maybe they do, but they just misunderstand what an apostle is biblically. So that, that you should be very wary of, of, of somebody that calls himself an apostle. So signs and wonders are done through the hand. Acts 5.12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Acts 14.3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Context there being Paul and Barnabas, Paul an apostle. Romans 15, Paul, at the end of his magnum opus, Romans writes in verse 18 through 20, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So he's saying that I'm an apostle. He's made that claim earlier on in Romans. And he's saying, through me came these signs and wonders to confirm my ministry to the Gentiles as the apostle to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Paul is refuting, he is arguing against these 
false teachers in the Corinthian church that were criticizing him, and they were saying, hey, we're apostles, but actually they were false apostles, and they were saying, Paul, he's so puny, he's not a prosperous guy, look, he's weak, and he's not a great speaker, he's not a true apostle, we're the super apostles because we've got all this charisma, and we've got all these things, and, and Paul is, he's, he's debunking their false argument and their false ministry, and he's speaking about his ministry as a true apostle, and he says in 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And he's speaking about himself. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, sort of summarizes this whole idea of, the, of Jesus, of signs and wonders following the ministry of Jesus to affirm, confirm his, his deity, and then signs and wonders following his specific apostles to affirm, confirm, attest to their special role in redemptive history. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, meaning the message, I think, of the apostles, the, the teaching of the Bible, it, the gospel, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that's a reference to the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this particular view that I think is a biblical view says and believes that yes, miracles can still happen, God still does miracles, but we need to understand that miracles, their primary purpose in the New Testament was to affirm, attest, confirm the ministry of Jesus and the apostles and their ministry. That's not to say that we don't see miracles throughout the rest of the history of the church or even today. But it is to account for the factual history that clearly in the New Testament, during the ministry of Jesus and the early years of the apostles, we certainly see a huge cluster of miracles. There was many more of them then. So it's not to say that miracles don't happen now or can happen or that we shouldn't pray for them, but it is to say that the primary purpose, the cluster of miracles that we see is for the primary purpose of confirming the ministry of Jesus as the Son of God and the apostles as his sent ones. Okay, so that view would hold, which I would hold, is that yes, God still does miracles, but they are not necessarily normative. The other view would hold that yes, God still does miracles, and, and I disagree with this view, but this is growing in, 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 in following, is that miracles are normative, should be normative in the Christian life, and should be pursued, like all miracles, especially, and this, this is the view held by Bill Johnson and, and Bethel Church in California. They're, they're growing in influence. And I think one of the ways that they've really grown in influence, I mentioned it earlier, was by, by their music. Uh, and, and I think that is, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I think that is very concerning. Because I think the theology of Bethel Church, while very likely, I imagine, comes from a good place and a desire to see God do uh, great things is quite frankly unbiblical and I think can potentially be very dangerous and disruptive to the ministry of the gospel. This particular view holds that not only does God still do miracles, but that they should be normal in the life of the believer. Um, and, and let me say also that this particular view tends to classify miracles uh, rather narrowly, ironically enough, because they, it's kind of, they kind of view their, they, that they have a bigger view of God, but ironically, they, they tend to classify miracles rather narrowly and only in the physical sense. They tend to speak of miracles primarily in the lane of physical healing. And so it's this view that, that, Christ, that, that uh, miracles should be normal in the Christian life. In fact, Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel Church, has written a book about 10 years ago. It's, it's, it's very well known in these circles and very popular and has been very influential I got a copy recently. I've been working through it. It's, I, I'm, I'm just showing you this book not as a recommendation. This is, this is not a good book. And I say that humbly. This, this book is, is, um, is, is full of misunderstandings 
about, about the work of Jesus. And it's called, When Heaven Invades Earth, A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles. And I'm going to read to you a quote about it in just a second. So where, where does this, what are some scriptures that supposedly support this view? What are some scriptures that supposedly support this view that miracles should be normal in the Christian life? Well, the, let me say first before I read a scripture or two is that people that have this perspective, whether they realize it or not, at least the theological perspective of this movement is based on an understanding of Jesus during his earthly ministry. And that understanding of Jesus' nature during his earthly ministry, I think, is a very serious error in misunderstanding of the Bible. And that error is, is that they believe that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was merely a man and stopped being God. And where do they get that from? They get that from a passage, wrongly they get it from a passage in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Paul is writing, and he's trying to argue for humility and considering others better than yourselves. He's trying to argue for, he's encouraging the church to be humble, to not think of themselves, but to think of others. And he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself, that's the key phrase, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And the theological perspective that, that uh, believes that Jesus was a mere man, stopped being God during his earthly ministry, believes, gets that view from a wrong understanding of verse 7 that says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That's a Greek word, that word emptied. It's a word kino, which has become a theory, uh, a theological perspective called the kenosis theory. And that theory believes that there was a time, here, follow the logic now, that there was a time, so they, they believe that Jesus is God eternally, the second person of the Trinity, but they believe that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, stopped being God and was just a mere man. And the reason, follow this logic, this is really important, that Jesus in his mere humanity, his, that he's just a man, that he was a perfect example of what it means to be a man completely yielded to the Holy Spirit. He's a perfect example of the anointing that would come from yielding yourself as a human to the Holy Spirit. And so all of the miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry were not because of his godness or his divinity or because he's the second person of the Trinity with all authority, but because he was just a man who's the perfect example of what it means to be completely given over to the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, Jesus serves as an example for all of those who can and should do the same in giving themselves over to that sort of yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. Now, is giving yourself over to the Holy Spirit completely a good thing to do? Yes. Did Jesus minister under the unction and power? Was he anointed by the Holy Spirit? Yes. See, those are all good things. But at its core, it's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And then it skews the ministry of Jesus from God becoming man to bear the wrath of the Father to God, to Jesus being not not our Savior, but our mere example. And now, because Jesus was a man that was yielded, now all of us should fall. That's the primary purpose, according to this view of Jesus' earthly ministry, was to be an example of this yielded human. And I think that, that skews the, the purpose of Jesus' ministry way off track and away from the centrality of the, of the atonement. And it sets people towards pursuing the works of Jesus rather than benefiting from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which was his primary purpose. This is a wrong understanding of that passage. Listen to what Bill Johnson says in his book, um, 
uh, Heaven Invades Earth, page 29, I think it is. It says about Jesus, I have it up on the screen. What I'm about to read is wrong. I know mostly I put, I put stuff up on the screen that's good. This is, this is wrong. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. Recapturing this simple truth changes everything and makes possible a full restoration of the ministry of Jesus in his church. Now that flies in the face of about 1,700 years of Orthodox Christianity. The Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, were creeds fought in the early years of the church to clearly define the nature of the, 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 the divinity and the humanity of Jesus as being his two natures. And so that's, that's wrong. But do you see how there's like echoes in there that seem true and are kind of attractive, right? I mean, there's kind of elements of truth in there. Well, yeah, I mean, of course we want to be like Jesus. He's an example. But it, 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 sets, it sets the compass of the Bible off of due north onto another azimuth. And when you follow that azimuth, it will, it, will, it will lead you into a, 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 a gospel that is unbiblical. And I think that's what's going on. I don't think they intend to do that. I think they just are probably well-intentioned, people that look, and they, but they're just misinformed. This is a, a significant theological error that's been around for centuries, and it's just being repeated. A right understanding of that passage emptied is that Jesus, and this is what Christians have believed for centuries, this is what the patriarchs hammered out in the early church councils, is that Jesus is not setting aside his divinity. He's not setting aside his nature. He's not setting aside his godness. He's setting aside his privileges as the son of God. And he is, and really the, the, the thought is, is that this emptying, and this is the note in the ESV study Bible, which is excellent. The ESV study Bible, tap into it. It's got all sorts of great stuff in it. It says that the emptying consisted of becoming human, not giving up any part of his true deity. So really the emptying is him taking on humanity, not, not giving up his, his godness. So, so the do you see, the, the logic is then, if Jesus is just a perfect man, we should follow him, and we should do everything that he has done. And then, another verse that, that, that uh, people in this particular stream would hold to is where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And listen to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. It says, And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 5, the twelve Jesus sent out. So these twelve are the apostles. They become the apostles, minus Judas, plus Matthias, in the beginning of Acts, instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. You receive without paying and give without pay. And so Bethel Church, in particular Bill Johnson in this book, bases their mandate, they call it a commission by Jesus, to raise the dead. In fact, they have a team at their church called the Dead Raising Team. It's a ministry that, by the way, I think it started in 2013. It's a group of people in their church that go about trying to raise. The, they're, they're O for how many every times they've tried so far. But the, it's still a ministry of the church. And they use this verse, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, as their biblical mandate. But notice who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to these 12 disciples who become the 12 apostles. So follow the logic. The, the, remember we just said? Jesus has these miracles in his life to confirm and attest to his, his identity. The apostles were given these miracles to confirm and attest to their authority. And so this is a misunderstanding of what's going on in Matthew chapter 10. 
This isn't an all-time, hey, this is going to be normative in the life of the church. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. He's speaking to the disciples, the apostles. This is the beginning of their apostolic ministry that they will go out in after he's resurrected as they plant the church and write the Bible. So my response would, would be is that we cannot take these verses, we cannot take Philippians 2, that's a wrong understanding, and draw from it that Jesus was just a fully realized man or that the, what Jesus tells the apostles is written to every Christian and should be normative in the life of the New Testament believer. And before we, we go on to answer this question about what did Jesus mean when he said greater works, let me just, let me just drill down, and I'm not, listen, I, hear my heart on this. I am not intending to bash Bethel uh, or be uh, um, unnecessarily critical or malign their motives. I do not know these people. I've done a good bit of reading on their website. I've done a good bit of listening to their messages. And I've, I've done a good bit of reading about, uh, about people that I respect greatly and their, their critiques on, on this ministry. And I, I, I have a pastoral concern because I realize that we live in a digital age and people in this church that I and the other elders are responsible for may be taking in this stuff. And I just, I just, want, to cons- I just want to care for the life of this church by issuing a concern about the ministry of Bethel. Not that maybe many of people in, the, in Cross Point may be listening to their teachings or reading their books, but my concern is, is that their, minis- their music is so influential. Bethel music and Jesus Culture music, Jesus Culture is kind of one of their music labels or bands or something, they're so influential, and quite frankly, much of their music is, is musically very, very good. I mean, that's not my... That's not sort of my world, but I can tell that it's well done musically. And a lot of their songs may not necessarily contain bad theology, but some of it certainly does, or kind of fuzzy theology. But my concern is that the, the, the popularity of Bethel music, especially sung in faithful churches, it serves as a kind of gateway drug that normalizes... And, and mainstreams, oh, if this, is, if this is the Bethel band playing this, this is Bethel music, then what Bethel Church must be teaching is, is, is valid too. By the way, I have that same concern about Hillsong. Hillsong, maybe we'll do another thing. Hillsong is a theological train wreck. And their music is very, very popular. And we have moved away from singing Hillsong songs. Not because, some of them are actually really, really good. But I don't, we don't want to endorse... And by the way, every time you sing a song in a church, you pay a couple pennies to some little CCLI licensing thing, you're actually funding the ministry of these churches that preach this bad doctrine every time churches sing their music. And so I'm just, I'm just concerned. I'm concerned about, about the ministry and influence of Bethel. I watched a video where Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel, um, talked about uh, this little precious girl, broken, just, just heartbreaking to see that this little girl passed away unexpectedly. Um, and, and I just have just some concerns about even the things he said in this five-minute video. Uh, he said in the video that he was asking for prayer because a key individual's daughter died. And this particular girl was the child of some people that were very involved in the worship ministry, I think, at, at the church. Well, I mean, my thought is just like, you know, certainly there are people at a church that large that die all the time. Why aren't we praying for resurrection for all of them? You know? I mean, it, it, what, what if you're not a key person? It, then he said, he said this. He said this. He said in the video, he says that the, he was speaking about the ministry, the mandate of Jesus, and that we have the mandate to be like Jesus. Remember this perfect theology, perfect man theology that we should pursue because Jesus is perfect. We should pursue, try and be like him. He says that the reason Jesus raised the dead is because not everyone dies in God's timing. He said that. Now, I don't know what he meant by that, but I, I know that at least in my Bible, Psalm 139 says that every one of our days was ordained before one of them came to be. Every one of our days was written in God's book. And so the day of our birth and the day of our death is ordained by God. And he, he said that in the instances in the Gospels where, where 
people, where Jesus resurrected people, he said, quote, Jesus could tell that it wasn't their time to die. And so that's just creating a universe where, where God's not sovereignly in control of everything and the future's open and Jesus is occasionally interrupting to raise people because they didn't die in God's timing. That is an unbiblical view of the providence and sovereignty of God. Now, they may be well-intentioned. I think these people are sweet and kind and wonderful, I'm sure. But you run that through, and it, it, will, it will lead you askew and off of the gospel. Secondly, my concern about Bethel and ministries like them is that in ministries that want to promote really heavily pursuing divine healing is that I think they unintentionally end up distorting the gospel. They affirm, like we would, virtually all people in this camp would affirm that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that a person must individually repent of their sins and believe in Jesus' work, his finished work, to be saved. They would all affirm that. They would say, yeah, that's the gospel. But they would add to the gospel by saying that the gospel also must include physical healing. It's a necessary part of realizing the fullness of the gospel here and now. And friends, that just does not square with the Bible. It doesn't square with Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. It doesn't square with 1 Peter 4 about how we will, ex- we will have fiery trials. It doesn't square with Romans 8. It doesn't square with Job's life. And when Bill Johnson's speaking about Job, people ask him about Job often, and he says, he says, he, he says I don't, yeah, I think he's even said, like, I don't know what to do with Job. Job. Job asks a question, and Jesus answers it. Well, that's, what does that even mean? Job is an instance where God is behind for his sovereign purposes, bringing about, or not healing, or not moving, for his divine purposes. So, um, I'm concerned about Bethel, and I pastorally would warn you about, about um, intaking uh, their content. Back to the question, does, d- does God do miracles? Yes, 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 yes! But I don't think that they are normative in the life of the church today. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for them. Pray for them. We're going to talk about that in a second. I just think we need to be realistic and realize. It, I think anybody just factually, empirically, needs to admit that miracles are not nearly as prevalent as they were in the time of the apostles and Jesus. Okay, what did Jesus mean? Let me do this quickly. What did Jesus mean when he said that we would do greater works than him? Let me read to you John chapter 14. These next two questions will go quicker. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So clearly, Jesus says here that greater works than these will, will, will we do, will he do. I think he's speaking to the, to the church at large here. I'm going to the Father. What does this mean? Well, what it can't mean is that we, as Jesus' followers, can do better miracles than Jesus. Whatever greater means, it doesn't mean that we can like, f- do greater things than him or, or part bigger Red Seas or you know, make m- more nothing come into more fish. It, that's certainly not what it means. And it can't mean that we can raise people who are more dead than those who Jesus raised. You know, Lazarus was dead. Jairus' daughter was dead. Um, it, it can't mean that. So what, what does he mean by greater? Well, historically, the church has believed a few things about what Jesus meant by greater. And let me give it to you in kind of four words. Greater by location, greater by duration, greater by summation, and greater by post-resurrection. First location, okay? That Jesus was confined. I mean, Jesus in his earthly ministry never really went beyond a, a, a kind of square foot about island, about this, not island, but if you were to map out the square footage of where he actually walked, it was about the size of Manhattan. And the gospel, through his apostles, through the centuries, has spread throughout the whole earth. So in that sense, the ministry that comes through us is greater in location and geography. Secondly, it's greater in duration. Jesus ministered for a little over three years. 
And we've been, we've been taking the gospel as his church, as his bride, as his body through the centuries. So through duration. And then summation. Certainly Jesus only ministered to a finite number of people during his time um, on his earthly ministry. And the sum of people that have received the gospel, that have heard the good news, whose eternity have been secured, is a much greater sum than obviously than just Jesus' earthly ministry. But probably most prominently, the greaterness <laughs> I'm just making up words now. The greaterness, but it fits. The greaterness of Jesus's ministry, of our ministry over Jesus's, is that it is post cross, post resurrection. So Jesus's ministry is pointing forward to His work, which was a shadow to come. Whereas our ministry, our proclamation of the truth of the gospel is pointing back to the finished work of Christ. And that's greater. It's greater. Listen to what Don Carson says. He's a well-known scholar, and this is true. All right, let me put it up on the screen. In short, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death insofar as the former belong to an age of clarity and power introduced by Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation, meaning we're post-resurrection. Both Jesus' words and his deeds were somewhat veiled during the days of his flesh. Even his closest followers, as the foregoing verses make, make clear, grasped only part of what he was saying. But Jesus is about to return to his Father. He is about to be glorified. In the wake of his glorification, his followers will know and make known all that Jesus is and does. And their every deed and word will belong to the new eschatological age that then will have dawned. So think about the fuzziness of Peter at the end of the Gospels. You know, he is afraid of a girl in front of a campfire. But post-resurrection, post-pouring out of the Spirit on the church, he's preaching the Gospel boldly, right? Okay, so question number three. So, so let, me, let me summarize here. What did Jesus mean when he said we would do greater works? It, it, it doesn't mean that we're going to raise more dead people or do greater miracles. It's speaking of the, 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 the intangible nature of the, the scope, the duration, the number of people that will come to faith and the glory of basking in this new age of the resurrection. Third and final thought question, what should our posture, this is just a quick pastoral exhortation, what should our posture be as believers to the miraculous? Well, let me say this. I, I think, I, I hope I haven't been um, unjustly critical of the ministry of Bethel and others in that camp. If I've been strong, it's only because I'm concerned pastorally. Um, I want to say that actually, you know, listening to a lot of the stuff that I listen to and read, I, I, at times I was chastened. I was chastened and I was convicted. And unlike some of these prosperity goons on TBN, these knuckleheads, these charlatans that just want to bilk old ladies out of their money, you know, Send me $68.19. Psalm 68, 19 says, The Lord will daily load me up with benefits. I heard this prosperity gospel preacher saying one time, Psalm 68, 19, I think it is, The Lord will daily load me up with benefits. So you send me $68.19 and sow your seed. I wanted to throw a brick through the television. I'm contrasting these Bethel people with these charlatans on TBN that are prosperity gospel, these Kenneth Hagin and all these Kenneth Copeland and these wackos that are buying jets, Creflo, aptly named Dollar, who's wanting people to give him millions of dollars to fly in. That's ridiculous. That's these people, I don't even know, I don't even have a category for them. They just make me want to, they just make me want to stick a fork in my eye. <laughs> Bethel, Bethel though, and people in that stream, I, I actually think, I think they love people, and I think they probably have a sincere love for the Lord, but I think they're theologically misinformed. When I watch, when I watch them, it, they're captivating, and they ooze with sincerity, and I do think they're sincere, and I think that they want a lot of, I think they want all of God to do whatever, but I just think it's, it's bad theology, and I, and, and you know, the truth, we need to know the truth, and so I'm chastened as I watched them by their hearts. So, so, so what should our posture be? Well, first, friends, we should pray for God to heal. We're going to get to the end of James here pretty soon. We're in James chapter 5. It says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And man, 
I'm convicted, man. We got a bigger church. There's people sick. I always feel pastoral guilt because we're, we're not praying for people like we should. And I wish we did that better. And we're, gonna, we're having an elder meeting tonight. Maybe we need to talk about just how we're going to work more prayer into our, our services. But let's not confine prayer to just an hour and a half when we gather on Sundays. We want to pray for one another. And we want to pray for God to do great and mighty things. And if somebody's sick, if somebody has cancer, we should pray and we should ask for God to heal them. And his healing means may be outside of normal means, meaning a miraculous intervention, or it may be within his normal means, which is his miraculous grace through the hands of gifted physicians. Every good gift comes from God with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning, James 1. And so we should pray for God to heal and we should do it more passionately. And I'm convicted as I look at these people that have bad theology for their passion for souls and I want more of that in my life and I want more of it in our church. So let's not, let's not let good theology get in the way of passionate pursuit of God. Let's pray that God would heal people. But, secondly, let's not unwittingly limit God in the pursuit of miracles. The mission of God is not the temporary healing of our bodies. And the problem, I think, with this theological perspective that I'm critiquing tonight is that they actually unwittingly reduce God's power and authority to just the sort of here and now and these 80 or 90 years and physical health. And even if you get cured of cancer, you're going to die. And so I think unwittingly, they actually, they actually confine God's miraculous power to a very small sphere of the way he works at times. Thirdly, we should have a balanced, already not yet posture. The kingdom is already here in the sense that Jesus has established the outpost of the church in the gospel, but it's not yet fully realized. We're living between D Day and V Day, so to speak, at the end of World War II. Victory has been declared, but it's not yet fully realized. We, we kind of live in this tension where we have already received all of his reign. We are already justified and glorified, but yet we are pursuing even our own sanctification. We're, we're going forward. We're not yet what we will be. And that's the way this life is here. And so we, 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 we posture ourselves in humility, knowing that we will all, to some degree, limp to heaven, not fully healed. But on that day, we will be fully healed. And then finally, we should trust God's good purposes in his providence. As we passionately pray for him to do great things, not just in the physical realm, but spiritually to save souls, that's the greatest miracle. Let's talk about miracles, taking a dead heart and making it new. That's the greatest miracle. We should trust that God has good purposes in his providence when he doesn't temporarily heal. Think about Romans 8.28 where it says that he works all things together for the good of those that love God. And in some strange way, in some mysterious, beautiful way, God, God, God is working all things together. Jesus in John 5 walks past a whole bunch of invalids to get to one man to heal him. Paul's thorn in the flesh stayed with him for some divine purpose. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, don't forsake this fiery trial. Don't think it's a strange thing that's happening to you. Happening to you. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, you will be with him as an heir, provided you, you will be glorified with him, provided you suffer with him. And let's not forsake the good, kind providence of God in using all things in the scope of human experience to bring us safely home. Not just physical healing, but sometimes great pain and trial. That's all I got. Let's be a church that prays for God to heal. But let's be biblical, and let's, um, let's, let's ask God to do great things. Let's, a couple minutes for questions. Questions, questions, questions. Anybody got any questions? We've got a couple guys running microphones, and we're taping this, so we've got a question over here. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, first, I loved how you kind of pointed out towards the end yeah, the difference between some of the charlatans and yeah. uh, these people over at like Bethel, some of these churches that the people there 
quite literally do love, you know, have good intentions. Yeah. And probably do truly have a lot of people there that love Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you, you went to the posture towards them. If I could ask just a step further, how do we as a church promote unity in the big church across denominations with that in mind, as well as abiding in the Holy Spirit versus, yeah. you know, becoming frozen chosen. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So that we can actually have that chance of talking about the yeah. differences. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think part of it is I think it's just a posture of humility. You know, I mean, I think even that scripture in Philippians two, you know, like if I'm talking to a brother that I disagree with or a sister that I disagree with about a whole host of theological topics, you know, I want to, I think of was it Chrysostom or one of these early church fathers that somebody helped me with this. One of you guys that it's just off the top of my head, like in 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 he's talking about in all things have charity. Um, in unity, in, 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 somebody help me with this, in, in, in some things we, we want to have grace, but in all things charity. Um, in, in, I'm looking at you guys. You guys should know this. Is, yeah. Um, that in our differences, we should have charity. In our whatever, we should have. But in all things, we should have this kind of grace and humility towards one another. And so I just think we should just have a kind of radical gentleness with one another. Um, and here's what I think has hurt us, Jeff, is the internet. It, 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 you know what it does to my soul? I'm, not, I'm speaking my, I hope this is a safe place. I'm talking for me right now. I hope, I don't know if you're like this. It, I am prone to assume the worst about people when I see something on the internet. It's like there's a little demon in the computer that's just like, like whispering in me, assume the worst, assume the worst, assume the worst. And I just confess that, and I want to fight against that. So maybe just just being aware that digital, like assuming the best in, of, of other people, is probably going to help us in that pursue unity. So, no thanks to these guys who couldn't help me with that quote. Okay, yeah. Okay, give give him a give him a microphone. I need the, we need this on on tape. All right, it is attributed to several different authors. It says, in essentials, unity, in doubtful matters, liberty, in all things, charity. Yes, okay. There you go. Go, Google. <laughs> yeah, go. Thank you, Dr. Google. Read that again one more time, Mitchell, in case anybody wants to get that. Since... In essentials, unity, in doubtful matters, liberty, in all things, charity. Yeah, yeah. And you know what that is? That's Romans 15 disputable matters, right? So don't, don't look down the end of your nose at your, at your friend who eats meat that's offered to idols because they're free. And don't, don't have this legal... That's, 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 that's the heart of that, yeah. And we're going to be stretched, Jeff, to live that out because these things are serious. It's, it's, this is bigger than whether or not you, you know, um, listen to secular music or not or, 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 or drink a beer but it, it's, 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 it's the same spirit of charity. Jeremy, microphone. I think um, one comment I would just add to Jefferson's question about how do we pursue that is, um, in missions, you see, you know, if you read a lot of missions, there's a lot of talk about miracles and visions mm -hmm. and a lot of the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And I do believe it is because in lots of those places, Christ is unknown. Yeah. They don't, they don't even know who he is. They don't know about him. And so, in a sense, God is proclaiming as missionaries go out yep. and they pre preach the gospel and they're doing life on life with people. They do have opportunities to pray for people, love on people, and God answers that as an testament to the, the message that they're proclaiming. And so... I think how that works out in our lives is as we love on people and do relationships with people, instead of like as a big church event where we're going to seek the Holy Spirit, I think we do life with people. And as we're doing life with people, we have opportunities to pray for people yeah. and, and to live out our gospel witness yeah. and the relationship that we have with Christ. And sometimes the answers, yeah. sometimes, but, but the gospel message should precede that. Yeah, I think, I think that's very true. 
I think that's very true. That's good. Okay, one more. Arlene, let's do Arlene one, and then I want to be cognizant of time. Maybe then Gabe. Is that you back there, Gabe? Okay, we'll do Arlene and then Gabe, and then we'll, we'll dismiss. All right, well, we've talked a lot. I about like your hair, Arlene. Oh, thank you. Um, well, we've talked about this sometimes. I have a whole bunch of stuff, but just one little thing. Mm -hmm. um, the measure of faith that God gives us, and I think that that's American society. I've, I come from Jamaica. Mm -hmm. I don't need Americans come telling me about Jesus mm -hmm. because we grow up with Jesus, with yeah. the Church of Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's like, um, how do you balance um, trueness of Christ given? I believe that there's a scripture that says that he gives to us healers unless we do not believe in healers anymore yeah. or are healers, are we looking for physicians? Because the woman of blood went to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so there is mm -hmm. a, a miraculous supernatural of Jesus that is totally missed in the, um, in the, when you're given the gospel, you live your life as witness and he mm -hmm. gives measures of faith. And mm -hmm. so there's some who are going to have that power mm -hmm. and it, it, it needs to be fostered praying for the sick. Mm -hmm. How do you pray for the sick if you're not going to foster a healing environment where God does give some people mm -hmm. measures of faith mm -hmm. that can, I am not going to talk about raising the mm -hmm. dead. I'm mm -hmm. going to leave yeah. that to Jesus. Sure. Yeah. But there is, I just, I just want to know some kind of balance of yeah. where is the supernatural Jesus in our lives? Like where is the resurrection power that's supposed to live inside of us? Yeah. I, I yeah. want to know that. Yeah. Well, Boy, Arlene, you're touching on some things that I think are really important, which I, honestly I think are, are, are worthy of kind of a, a, a sort of another category of discussion theologically is just the, the whole issue of the, the, the perspectives of the continuation or the cessation of spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Um, I would take a kind of nuanced position that I'm not saying that God doesn't still heal, but that the cluster of the gift of healing was grouped around the ministry of the apostles, and since the apostles' ministry is now finished and set as a foundation, that I don't think that the gifts of healing, like a person that, uh, that has that gift, I don't think that role is as prevalent, at, if at all, in the church today. But that's not to say that we shouldn't pray and that God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't um, heal. What I'm saying is what I think what's happening in the New Testament, it's like in 1 Corinthians 12, where it's talking about gifts of healing, that those are coming alongside the ministry of the apostles for that specific time. But then generally, how do we pray? I think I, think, I, think I would just get back to what my, my pastoral admonitions about just we need to not just have doctrine, we need to like pray. We need to pray for one another simply. And it doesn't need to be a big hullabaloo or some sort of dramatic thing. We just need to have a kind of ordinary, regular uh, posture of asking God to move and to heal and to pray for each other when we're gathered together on Sundays, to pray for each other in our community groups, to fight for community, to know one another, to um, you know, share one another's burdens, to do the simple, ordinary one another so that we're in relationship with one another so that we can pray for each other in this way. And certainly, occasionally, to heed James 5, which says, pray, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and pray. So I think it's, I think it's a kind of organic culture in the church that, quite frankly, what I'm saying, Arlene, we need to do better. But we could, we could talk a lot more about, about that, you know, kind of specifically. So even your question might spur, spur us on to think about that more specifically. Yeah, yeah, give her back the microphone there. When you're praying, to what extent, like, mm. w what is the outcome of that prayer? Do, the outcome? Do not doubt. Pray the outcome, and do not yep, doubt. And, the, and I would say then the outcome is, is we pray in a posture of recognizing God's providence and when we pray in 1 John 5.14, if anything we ask according to his will, may it be done. So we resign ourselves. We, we, we bring our faith, but our faith is not the only component. Our faith is subordinated to his will. We pray, and then we leave it to the will of God. And I, I think, I think you yeah, know, we could talk a lot more about that. But Okay, Gabe, and then we want to um, conclude, and I'll stick around to answer any questions you may have. All right, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make this quick. Yeah. First off... As a, as a guy who came from the charismatic Pentecostal kind of name it, claim it, and, and, and you'll be healed no matter what, yeah. um, I appreciate this balance. This is, this is, it was just awesome Thank uh, you. listening to what you said. So um, on that, uh, looking at scriptures like in, in James chapter 5 where it says, 
uh, the elders, you know, use oil and lay hands, mm -hmm. and, and the guy will be saved who is yeah. sick. Yeah. Um, I'm heavily paraphrasing, guys. But yep. uh, for that scripture where we read that he will be healed or, yep. or he will be saved, I've heard it, it, it explained that, you know, the, the sick guy there is a, a sinner and, mm -hmm. and not someone who's, who's physically ill. Mm -hmm. um, where, where I have come from in the past, I've heard it said something maybe like, uh, in, the, in the mind of God, you're already healed but you just have to accept that by faith. And if mm. you're not getting healed, then you don't have strong enough faith. Yeah. Whereas now I would, I would understand it more as if you're praying for healing, then God is simply answering the prayer by no or, or not right now. Yeah. Uh, how, do we, how do we reconcile scriptures that say, uh, you know, pray and, and you will be healed with uh, understanding the sovereignty of God and our suffering, maybe? That's a great question. Um, which we could take an hour to answer. And so I think I'll do that on a sermon when we get to James chapter 5. And we actually get, that's a great question, Gabe. Um, I think we see these verses that are imperatives. And these verses sometimes are just commands on how we should posture ourselves as Christians. They're not exhaustive theologies and all that's going on in prayer. And I'll, so I'll be here that Yeah, then. so I, I would it. say there's a lot more we could say to that. Um, but I don't think clearly we have to take the we let, have to let the Bible interpret itself. If that's all that the Bible said about prayer and the expectation of prayer, I think we should expect. But that's not all that we have to put it all together. It's a great question. All right, let me pray, um, and I'll stick around to answer any questions. Although we do have an elders meeting tonight where we're going to talk about praying for the sick. <laughs> um, but it, as a result of this, but uh, but let me pray, and I'll stick around and answer any questions. This will be online. Um, and hopefully it's been helpful. Next week, we're going to talk about ah, just a minor little thing, like should women preach and, and lead and be pastors in a church? So come back for that. Lord, help us. Thank you. Lord, we pray your grace upon us as we go. Um, we know what you've promised us in the scriptures. Romans 8.29 says that those whom you foreknew, you also predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son. And so... The goal of the Christian life, which you have guaranteed, is that we would be conformed to the image of God. And so make the teaching tonight, make the scriptures that we've read be a tiny little part of making us more like Jesus, not because he's an example, but because we want to be fully sanctified. We want to love you with all of our heart. We want to, we want to be clear biblical representations of what it means to be followers of Christ so that you might use this church in our lives in a greater way to bring more people to faith, to do the greatest miracle of all, which is to take a dead heart and make it alive. Lord, help us be more like Jesus so that we can do that, that greater work that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for coming.